Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. It's been a week of sharp rhetoric from the president, presidential candidates, and the people. President Trump's comments that certain congresswomen should, quote, go back to the crime-infested places from which they came have ignited a firestorm of criticism and debate. At a Trump rally in North Carolina when Trump mentioned a congresswoman, Ilhan Omar, some in the crowd started chanting, quote, send her back. The president is now saying he disagreed with that chant. Here to discuss that and detail some policy plans this morning, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro. Great to be with you. We appreciate your time. So can the president credibly disagree with that chant now? Uh, he can't. Uh, he's the one that provoked it. You saw the video that night at the rally. He waited 13 seconds. He basked in that chant before he started his speech back up and then basically tried to say that he started very quickly and this is classic Donald Trump uh, you know he provokes this kind of reaction and then he lies about it afterward the most important thing here is look this is not who we should be as a country throughout the generations there have been political leaders that uh, beefed up their own career by dividing people along racial or ethnic or religious lines you think about folks that used to say uh, go back to Africa or the Irish need not apply, or go back to Mexico, or the Chinese are excluded, or the folks that were marching in Charlottesville a year or so ago was saying the Jews will not replace us. But in every generation in our country, there have been those of different backgrounds that rose up against that kind of bigotry and hate, uh, and leaders that built coalitions instead of dividing. For those of us who are running for president, uh, the challenge is that we need to be coalition builders. We need to be uniters. His specialty in politics, uh, his trick is division. What we need to do is actually unite, and that's what I've been trying to do out there. Getting to that unity, if you're the president and we accept uh, Democrats are saying this is racist and Republicans are not condemning what's going on as racist, how do you in good conscience then work with those Republicans once you're the president? Well, I think you have to start by appealing to their constituents. You know, it's not surprising that politicians, uh, some politicians don't have a spine at this point. Um, Fortunately, politicians don't always re reflect the heart of the people that they represent. And I believe, while I know, I'm not naive, I know that there are a lot of folks out there that may agree with the president, agree with that sentiment. I've gotten the emails, I've seen the tweets on Twitter that people send out. Um, however, I think there are more people, even Republicans, that uh, find that disgusting and don't want to have anything to do with that kind of rhetoric. So we need to appeal to them. Have you ever personally faced that slur, go back where you came from? Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten that from the time that I was in city council to the time I was mayor in San Antonio on the campaign trail. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a minority politician or office holder who hasn't gotten some form of that, wherever they're from. Uh, you get it in emails, you get it on Twitter, and, when I started my career in public service in the early 2000s, people would still send letters that every now and then that said that kind of thing. And obviously, I'm down in Texas, and I'm Mexican-American, so it's not surprising. You know, people saying, 
go back to your country or go back to Mexico. That's why I think a lot of people can relate. But here's the thing, I mean, you know, near the time that our country was founded, you know, Germans were the subject of that kind of talk. Uh, Irish were the subject at one point of that kind of talk. So there are families in this country that have a history, that understand that we face these kinds of things for different people. And that's why I think that um, people understand that we need to build coalitions here and push back against it. We have a politician that in an unprecedented way for over the last 50 years has been the most successful politician based on racial priming, based on separating people along racial and ethnic lines. So it's up to us to bring people together instead of divide the way that he wants to. There are a lot of people who are probably fed up with this, but not really saying anything. Is that essentially white privilege, to be able to detach yourself and say, well, this too shall pass? I mean, sure. I mean, there's some amount of privilege that people have. Um, there are certainly people that are more impacted by this. What I keep thinking about are uh, all of those children, uh, let's say they wear hijab, who are sitting in elementary school classrooms in the United States, who are every bit as American as anybody else. But because the president is doing this, it gives those little children around them even more license to make them the other, to tell them to go back home. Um, and the damage that that does to that child, and also the damage that that does to younger Americans by corrupting their hearts when it comes to people who are different from them. The beauty of this country has been that we've gotten better over the generations. So what gets to me the most is that this guy is corrupting the youngest generation of Americans to go backward instead of forward because we had been moving forward and he's taking us backward. On immigration, uh, you're proposing essentially to decriminalize immigration now. You're talking a lot about this section uh, 1325, I think mm -hmm. it is, of the Immigration Code, uh, which makes it a misdemeanor to cross the border without papers. Uh, would that not, though, if you change that, uh, create a lot of incentive for people to come across the border? Not at all. There would still be consequences, negative consequences for coming across the border. Uh, it would just be a civil action in civil court. In other words, somebody would still be subject to deportation. You just wouldn't have the misdemeanor attached to that. The reason that that's important is because um, this is a law that has existed since 1929, but until about 2004, it was not really charged as a crime. So that there should tell you that it wasn't essential to our law enforcement. Uh, this administration weaponized it, weaponized that section of the law to incarcerate migrant parents and separate them from their little children. I've said that we should get rid of that law because I don't want a future administration to weaponize it in the same way to separate little children from their migrant parents. And I believe that we can be just as effective with regard to immigration without that law. Uh, on top of that, I've actually proposed on immigration that we get to the root cause of this challenge, which is that we partner with the Central American countries that people are coming from so that people can find safety and opportunity at home instead of having to come to the United States. I mean, last month we had 104,000 people that came to our southern border. And this president has wasted two and a half years without doing what he should have done in the first place, which was getting to the root cause of the issue. If I were president, on day one, on January 20th, 2021, I would immediately call the leaders of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador and say, look, let's work together 
so that people can find safety and opportunity in your country instead of having to come to the United States. Under your plan, what about re-entry? If someone uh, who is here uh, without papers commits a crime, say a misdemeanor, and is deported, is their re-entry into the country, is that a crime? Same thing. I mean, it would still, there's still consequences, but that would be in the civil uh, uh, courts, not criminal courts. Let's shift to foreign policy quickly here. Uh, Iran, uh, the U.S. just shot down a drone uh, in the Strait of Hormuz. What's the next best step that this country can take to avoid conflict? Well, my hope is that this administration can be effective at de-escalating these growing tensions with Iran. Remember, we're in this mess right now, this chaos, because this president came along and tore up the Iran nuclear agreement, even though both on our end and also our allies and adversaries around the world, they acknowledged that that was the strongest agreement that had ever been negotiated to make sure that a country did not get a nuclear weapon. And Iran was complying with that agreement, according to everybody, even our own intelligence sources. He tore that up and has caused this mess. I think now the best steps are to be able to de-escalate that, to work with our allies, to put pressure on Iran, to get back in compliance with that agreement, because now actually, after we said we weren't going to abide by it, they're out of compliance. They need to get back into compliance, and then we need to figure out a way to get back into compliance with that original agreement or effectively negotiate, in short order, a new agreement. So an agreement, essentially, an Iran deal with Trump's name on it, that's okay with you as long as we get back to the policy? I mean, what I want is I want something that's effective so that they don't get a nuclear weapon. He never should have torn up that agreement in the first place, but now that we're at where we're at, you know, you need to make sure that, uh, that they're not going to get a nuclear weapon. As we wrap up here, uh, you've got some momentum. How do you get from where you are to number one? Uh, just working hard, you know, uh, getting out there and uh, doing a lot of events here in New Hampshire, in Iowa, these early states. We're staffing up, of course. We're going to be putting more people on the ground. And our fundraising has picked up a lot. Media attention has picked up a lot. And so I want to make the most of it. All right. Secretary Castro, thanks for your time on Close Up. Good to be with you. We appreciate it. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. John Hickenlooper is one of the few 2020 candidates to have led one of the 50 states. But so far, it's been a tough slog as the former two-term governor of Colorado has just had to reset his campaign. John Hickenlooper is our guest this morning. Good to see you. Thanks for get, uh, joining us here, Governor. Of course. Thanks for having me. So the reports uh, had some advisors telling you to drop out of this race and run for Senate. Why stick it out on the 2020 presidential campaign trail? Well, because I, th I still feel that I am unique among all the candidates. Uh, you know, what we did in Colorado, we brought businesses and nonprofits together. We brought Democrats and Republicans. We got to near universal health care coverage. Uh, we passed, you know, universal background checks and, and other reasonable gun laws. And most importantly, we became the number one economy for three consecutive years in a row and an economy where, where really everyone was getting to share in the prosperity. I think I'm the one person who's done what everyone else is, is just talking about. And I want to make sure voters get a chance to, you know, once they begin to pay attention, that they have that choice. You don't need much money to campaign in New Hampshire at all. That's the beauty of it here. Uh, but you do need money to campaign nationally. Only about a million dollars brought in in the last quarter. What's your plan to persist uh, on a lower budget? Well, I think 
I need to keep raising money, and, and if you're not a U.S. senator, it's infinitely harder to get small dollar donors and even to get to large dollar donors if, you know, senators have all kinds of advantages in raising money. But I accept that. I knew that going in. My goal is to keep pushing in Iowa and New Hampshire and maybe a little bit in Nevada and South Carolina. But if I can move the needle in New Hampshire, if I can move the needle in Iowa, then all of a sudden the, the mainstream media begins to pay attention. And once they pay attention, I'm, suddenly if I move up in the polls, then it becomes e easier for a, a governor, someone who's actually done what everyone else is talking about, it becomes easier for me to raise money. You were in Iowa last month giving a speech, and you said socialism is not the answer, and they booed you. Did you feel like you were in a parallel universe there? <laughs> well, you know, I, I look at, you know, again, what we did in Colorado, we got the near universal health care coverage, but we did not go out and tell people they had to give up their private insurance, right? And, and Medicare for all would require 180 million Americans to give up their private insurance. And I realize some people hate their private insurance. Uh, but you're not going to convince 180 million people to give up something that many of them like. So we push real hard to have a public option and let people have the choice of migrating towards a Medicare, Medicare Advantage hybrid, uh, but not forcing them. And when I, when I spoke out against some of these big expansions of government, uh, you know, I used the word socialism, I got booed because I wasn't liberal enough. I think America, in New Hampshire, in Iowa, all across this country, they want pragmatic solutions. They want big progressive goals, right? We got to near universal health care coverage in Colorado, but we didn't have a big expansion of government. We got to, to you know, attack climate change. We got the oil and gas industry to work with the environmental community and address methane, one of the worst pollutants there is. We created methane regulations for the first time in this country, but we didn't do it with a massive expansion of government. We, we did it by work, getting everyone to work together. You often talk about making sure this is a big tent party for the Democrats, but do Democratic Socialists belong in the Democratic Party, or should they strike out on their own? No, I think it is a big tent. And I, you know, I have great respect for Senator Sanders, and many of the issues he raised in, in 2016 and before, he brought great clarity to, you know, to these issues that are now being talked about on a regular basis, student debt. Right. What are we going to do about student debt? Uh, uh, universal health care. How do we actually get to the point where health care is a right and not a privilege? He brought clarity. I disagree with Medicare for all, but it doesn't mean I don't respect the, the, the power of his voice and what it does to the debate. And I just want to be part of that debate to say, hey, socialism is not the answer. America was built. I tell people that this country was built on the work of individuals, but it was built on the work of individuals working together. And that's the model in Colorado. That's the model I want to take to the country, getting people to work together to address climate change and health care and, you know, uh, make sure that we have jobs for everyone. What is it that socialists don't get about entrepreneurship, do you think? Well, it's hard to say. I, I tried to take my experience as a, a restaurant owner, a brew pub owner, uh, basically a small business owner and entrepreneur. I want to take that systems approach to, to being mayor and being governor. And I think that if you think about it, an entrepreneur has to put a team together, has to motivate and, 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 and hold accountable that team to achieve whatever vision and goals they agree to. I mean, that's what government should be doing. And I look at too often the, the, the failures of government, the places we don't succeed. We didn't create a business plan. We didn't look at what is the risk versus reward when we make an investment of, of 
capital, right, tax money, uh, or social capital, people's work time. Uh, we need, I think, to have more of that small business background injected into how we solve the big problems facing this country. And yet you're getting booed for that. Yeah, sometimes. Not often. I mean, certainly I haven't been booed in, in, in New Hampshire, and I haven't been booed in, in Iowa. Uh, that was California, and that's a pretty liberal state. Okay. Um, Fifty years ago, the United States put men on the moon. Uh, this last week, we've been locked in a bitter debate about whether the president's tweets are racist. Uh, it's hard to imagine the kind of unity of purpose that existed back then existing now, and hard to imagine this country putting a man on the moon again. Why is that? Well, and I... I think of it in this sense. We are in a national crisis of division. And this is way before Trump ever got involved seriously in politics. I mean, it goes back three or four, maybe even five decades. And part of it is the media and, and how we've changed. We now have news channels that are all conservative or all liberal. People don't get a balanced perspective all the time. It's been exaggerated by social media like Facebook, where the haters can kind of take, take root and really twist the, the dialogue, tweet, uh, Twitter, and the, and the tweets that people make uh, are so often one-sided and, and filled with venom. I think that the key to this next election is whoever the candidate is has to be committed to, after the election, assuming they can defeat Donald Trump, how do we bring this country together? How do we get Republicans to work with Democrats and, and, and how do we get business to work with nonprofits and, and with, with foundations and universities to address things like climate change? We're never going to succeed in addressing climate change if we don't have everyone working together. You've got a new immigration plan out. You want to give visas, essentially, to the folks who are undocumented in this country. Ten years, is that correct? Yeah. And how would that kind of blanket visa amnesty, if you will, not create another sort of human wave of people trying to get across the border to get those well, visas? Well, what I say is that's got to be part of a comprehensive uh, reform. So the first thing we have to do is go to the southern border and, and deal with the humanitarian nightmare, the train wreck that's there now. And, and obviously that will take significant investments. Simultaneously, we have to go back down to what they call the northern triangle countries of El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. And, and as we did up until four years ago, really invest into those economies. It doesn't take a lot of money to make conditions better there so we're not generating all these refugees, people seeking asylum. Uh, but the third thing I said is comprehensive reform. So it's an, an ID system that works. It's securing the border. We don't need a wall, but we do, borders matter. We need a border. We, I think we need, uh, again, to take everyone who's here working right now and without documentation, we have to make sure that they uh, have a 10-year visa and, and, and have, are able to get additions if they need it. And since they've broken the law to be here, they, there should be some penalty. They don't just get to immediately go in line to become a citizen. Eventually, they'll have that opportunity. But the last thing is we have to hold businesses accountable. In other words, all the, the attraction for so many people is that they can get paid under the table. And that's un-American. I met people when I was running for re-election in Colorado that had had businesses, they've been entrepreneurs for decades, and they wouldn't pay under the table, and therefore they couldn't compete, and they went out of business. And that's the fourth part. We've got to increase the penalties for businesses and knowingly hire people illegally. There should be consequences. If we dry up that source of, 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 of income, people aren't going to come flocking to our country because they won't be able to find those jobs. The jobs will be regulated based on the number of visas, the number of people that are here. And just for the record, right now, 
we have 7.5 million people, uh, or a million jobs, 7.5 million unfilled jobs, and only 6.3, 6.4 million people looking. So we can't afford to send a million, or let's say 10 or 11 million, but certainly not even 1 million people away from this country, because we need workers. In Colorado, you were a moderate who was interesting enough to win. When are we going to see the John Hickenlooper of those commercials, you know, showering in a suit? <laughs> Is that something you can do to kind of, you know, grab that old strategy and create a spark here? Well, we want to really focus on making sure people know my record, that I'm the one person who's done what everyone else is just talking about. We've got to near universal health care. We've got to create the number one economy for the last three years. You know, we want that record to be known. But then now that we've kind of gotten that out there, we might begin looking at a little more playful approach, a more playful approach in terms of letting people really understand who I am. All right. Governor Hickelooper, thanks for joining us on Close Good to see you. We appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.